Let's pray before we look at Exodus chapter 5. Father, we thank you that we could gather tonight and in still a, a very free country, Lord. And open our Bibles and study and sing out loud where others could hear us with no fear of being persecuted or taken away from our family, Lord. And so we are extremely grateful for this, Lord. We thank you for the word of God. It is, it is your words. It's complete. We don't need to add to it. It's, it's this beautiful, God-given document without error, uh, full of authority for our lives, Lord. And so we thank you that we can study it together, Lord. Thank you for a church that has a history of many years of holding to the truth of the word of God and striving to live by it, Lord. We pray that you would give us many more of those years. We thank you for our next generation that even now um, behind us in the children's wing is being trained by people who love the Lord Jesus and his word. And we pray, Lord, you would save many of them, give them a saving knowledge early in age, and they would uh, wake up to the truths of God's word and they would grow, Lord. They'll, they'll need to replace us and lead. And, and so, Lord, we're excited about what's happening there. So bless that, Father, before I pray, Lord, I lift up Pastor Roy and, and the family, Lord. I, I pray that you would have your will. We always want your will, Lord, but we would ask that you would take Roy home soon, Lord. Put him into your presence and, and renew his mind and body and give him all that he will receive in heaven, Lord. I pray for Marky and the girls and the boys, Lord. Um, how hard this is, Lord. So we just pray that your will would be done, Lord, but we ask that you would do this for your glory. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we study back in Exodus again, Exodus 5, I've been chomping in the bit to get back here. Um, it's been a little while since we've been in, in, the, in Exodus, but uh, I don't want you to forget as we go through this because we're getting into some texts that are uh, uh, very specific of, of an area that God wants us to know about. And they're not always, in every page, do you see crystal-centric uh, truths just flying off the page. And this is one of them. But I, but I, I want you to remember, in all of this that we're going to study as we work our way through the book of Exodus, is the seed of Christ is there buried there deep in, in Egypt. He's, he's there, and, he's, and his seed is being passed down, and and they are in a country that their lives could be snuffed out if it was up to man. So I don't want you to lose that as we work our way through the book of Exodus, that the seed of Christ is buried deep in Exodus, just as God had planned it to be. He is going to bring that seed and the people out, and he's going to bring them into a promised land. Now, as we turn to Exodus 5, um, God has been very kind to Moses with this very difficult job that he's given him to do. Uh, the plan so far has been going fairly smoothly once he accepted it, once he realizes what God wanted to do and he took on this job. It has gone fairly smoothly. He had one little hiccup. He forgot to circumcise his son and God almost killed him for that, but they got through that. Uh, God was gracious to him there. But from there, things have went well. The plan has been unfolding nicely. Moses returns to the mountain of God and meets Aaron there. And you'll see in chapter 4, verse 27, there's a sweet reunion that takes place. And, and Aaron believes 
believes him. And, and, and so he sees this report and he hears it. And he believes what all that Moses told him in verse 28. And, and then they travel their way back to Egypt. And uh, the next portion, they tell the elders of Israel. And Aaron's speaking for Moses. And they're showing the miracle signs and, and that God had given to them in chapter 4, verse 30. And the elders and the people believe their report. Wow, things are going great here. They're, they're coming along. The plan of God is just filling out. Verse 31, they humble themselves before God, and there's this big worship that service that turns into this. What a great ending to verse 31, chapter 4. Everything is going as planned, and everyone is on the same page. Moses was obeying God, and the people are rightly responding. Boy, that sounds really cool to a pastor. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. But this, uh, this is great. And, and I mean, if you look at this, especially chapter four, as I read that, I thought, wow, this is gonna, be, you know, they're probably thinking, hey, he's gonna come in, we're gonna leave, you know, we'll be in the pro- promised land before you can say Bob's your uncle. It's looking really good. But not so fast. Chapter five comes along. And with it comes some difficulties. And we begin to understand that God's ways are often different than ours. His timing is uniquely different He puts trials and testing in our life for many reasons. And this passage is one of those uh, great testing times for Moses and the nation. Thus, I entitled the sermon, When God Does Not Perform the Way You Want Him To. And that's what we're going to see. I think that's the theme of of chapter 5. So let's look at a couple thoughts uh, this evening. One, the world does not believe the word of God. I know that's a... Uh, we believe that in here. <laughs> but uh, most people say, oh, oh yeah, I, I believe the Bible. They'll, they'll mess around with it. But it's not true. The, the world does not believe the word of God. Look at verse one with me in chapter five. Just the first phrase there. And afterwards, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, we'll stop right there. Well, this, this afterwards is, is after things have been going so well. Everything's moving along, along just swimmingly. Everybody seems to be on board with this plan of God. And so the, the narrative starts with this afterwards. And here's Moses and Aaron, and they seem to have some confidence because of how things are going, and they approach Pharaoh in this text. And we're not too sure how much time frame was between chapter 4 and chapter 5 and what happened there. Or certainly, um, you just didn't walk into Pharaoh anytime you wanted. That had to be arranged. There's meetings that took place with the elders and so forth. But whatever the reason, um, they, they seem to be in his presence. They seem to be somewhat confident in what they're doing. Um, it, it seems the elders are possibly with them. If you turn back to chapter 3, verse 18... Um, God in the burning bush here is telling Moses how things are going to go down. He says, verse 18, uh, they will pay heed to what you say and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt. So it's very possible the elders are there with Moses and Aaron as they are standing there in front of Pharaoh, this very powerful king. Now the scene is somewhat clear as Moses and Aaron are both probably in their 80s, and we know during this time, um, 80s doesn't seem to be that difficult. Um, They seem to be very agile at this time of life in the Bible. But they're probably in their 80s, along with maybe some older men, uh, these elders of Israel. And here they are approaching Pharaoh. Now, many believe that this Pharaoh is Amenhotep, Amenhotep II. 
uh, a lot of the pharaohs, it was difficult to f- see how they went down because they wiped out the, the lineage of all of them after one would take over. But this seems to be o- Omenhotep uh, II. And he came to age, if you've known if you have a little bit of your history, he came to age very early, 18 years old. He was made king of Egypt. He's much older now. He has children of his own. We'll know that because his firstborn will be slayed on the night of the Passover as the angel comes through. Um, but he has a very strong grip on these people. He has a very strong grip. They were strong leaders. Um, he and the Egyptians believed that they were gods. They were a god king. Uh, so they worshipped him that way. He commanded respect that way. And like the pharaohs before him, um, after the death of Joseph, they did not know God. That's what the Bible says. The God of Israel. Nevertheless, here comes Moses. You can see the scene. Moses and Aaron, his elders, they're coming in. They have some great confidence behind them. Things have been going swimmingly. And, and they come before Pharaoh, and this is what they say. Look in verse 1 in the middle there. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, this language is, is strong language, and, and it's, it's language of a messenger. It's, it's someone that would come and proclaim something on behalf of God. In fact, we, we see this type of language all through the Old Testament Uh, both in the uh, major prophets and the minor prophets. This is often the way they speak. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. It's a a strong, strong statement. Um, However, the the world of the kings used a very similar one. They would say, thus says the king of Egypt. We're going to see that just in a little bit here down in this text. But nevertheless, Moses speaks in this authoritative way as he's speaking for the God, the living God of, of Israel. Now, this is the first time this phrase is used of God in the Bible. Um, We see that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who would be later named Israel. But it's the first time in all of the scriptures will be used many times after this where the Bible says he is the God of Israel. So this title is directly connected to his covenant, to his ownership of these people. Now, there's going to be a problem here because you have a pharaoh, a god king, that thinks he owns these people. And now here comes a word from the true owner so you can see the clash that is about to happen. Now, instead of asking for the end result, isn't it interesting if you look at verse 1 that there is this alternative plan given. And God directs Moses to say, look at verse 1, let my people go so that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Well, you read that and you go, I, I thought the plan was to get them out. Well, yeah, it is. But there's several reasons why he does this. First of all, this is what God had instructed him to do in chapter 3, verse 18. We just looked at that, but flip back and look at it again real quick. He says, they will pay, pay heed to, you to what you say. You with the elders in Israel come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews, he's going to use that phrase later, has met with us. So now, please, let us go three days' journeys into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So the first reason why he says that is because God told him to say that. This is what God wanted him to do. And this is the idea of a pilgrimage. Um, and it, in, it includes... It would include God's terms of the process of release. This is God working on Pharaoh. This is God doing unique things. This isn't the last that we see of this. You look at chapter 10, just look forward just briefly. Um, We'll get to this in time. But just before the introduction of the plague of locusts, 
I mean, there's some of these plagues. We're going to have fun looking through this because you go, oh, man, these is, how do you like these things crawling in your bread and your bed and everywhere else? But just before this plague, he's already seen several of them. Pharaoh starts to recant, and, and he doesn't want this to happen. And so he knows enough that this Moses has this relationship with this God of Israel that he can turn off this plague. And so he calls him in and, and wants him to turn it off. Um, but Moses re- reiterates this part of the command. Moses said in verse 9, chapter 10, we shall go with our young and our old. I mean, he doesn't go, well, we're going to let you go. Just some of you go. You're not taking everything. He goes, no, no. We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. So this is the Lord's plan for his people to worship. And it's part of his departure. It's part of his exodus plan. God was going to slowly break or harden the heart of Pharaoh. I think they go together. And he was going to bring his people out in a unique way. So I think there's several considerations here. First, to let the people go and worship God in the desert was an acknowledgement that Israel belonged to God, not to Egypt. They're not going to worship you. They're going to actually go three days journey, which would put them out of the jurisdiction of the Pharaoh, and they're going to worship God who they belong to. So it's a statement that my people don't belong to you, Pharaoh. They'll be out of your jurisdiction. They're going to worship me, not you. So I think that's what he's doing, first of all. Second, I think we see God working within the cultural norms, too. (laughs) Uh, Bargaining in the Middle East uh, part of the world was, and I believe still is very much part of the culture. Samira's giving me a head nod there. Um, uh, we've, we've seen it repeatedly in the Bible, don't we? Uh, probably my favorite is Genesis 19. You've got Abraham and the trees of Mamre, the, probably the pre-incarnate Christ, and two angels show up just before they're going to go wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And there, there's this bartering that takes place, right? What does he say? If there's 50, God, will you not spare it? And then he's down to 40 and 30, and he's like, okay, God, I'm going to one more. And he gets down to 10. And there's this little bargain. God's going, yeah, yeah, angels are already going to do what they're going to do because he knows there's not 10. But there's this bar, and they seem to do that, and God works within that culture of it. And, and so there's this kind of bartering go on. I think this is part of the way they do life there. And he says, look, this is part of the exodus. We want to go out and worship God. However, if Moses had been expecting a continual success in chapter 4, like he had in chapter 4, oh, this was going to change because these people were not going to listen to him. Notice verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Well, Pharaoh's response is anything but positive here. It's it's almost sarcastic. It it dismisses the word of God and seems to put off that this God of Israel uh, cannot be compared to him. Who is this God of Israel? It's sarcastic, it's... It's rejecting the God that is the living God that holds his very life. So to Pharaoh, this was absolutely absurd that any demands such as this could be made upon him. I'm the king. I'm the God king. Why would you make this announcement to me? And it's clear he sees that this proposal is a threat against his own deity. And he sees and sniffs out a rebellion that may take place. He does not want that to happen. I do love the fact, notice that he says, I love the fact that Pharaoh says this, who is this Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Boy, is he going to regret that statement. 
I mean, he is going to regret that statement. As God reveals his power and authority time and time and time again. And he will be a broken man when God takes his people out. In the chapters to come, you will see that, and we look forward to studying that together. But, but here, we start to see the response to this. Look at verse 3. Then they said, the God of Hebrews has met with us. This is Moses speaking, and Aaron. Please let us go three days' journey in the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, Moses and the leaders respond quickly to Pharaoh's statement here. They notice they they do not explain who the God of Israel is, but again repeat his commands. I like that. We don't fight for the existence of God. The Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God. It's understood. He's God. He's always existed. There's, There's nothing to debate about that. And they don't do that. They don't argue over that. They just repeat the command. However, this time, they call him the God of the Hebrews. Now they're designating this group of language people within there, a group that speaks a certain way, who worship and do things a certain way. This is what he was speaking about in chapter 3, verse 18. He's getting the language correct now. And they, they assert that this God they've met with. Isn't that interesting? We've met with this God. Notice it says um, here in the beginning, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Well, he's actually met with Moses. Remember the burning bush and the shoes off and holy place and wow, what a, what a passage that was as we studied that together. We've met with him. They're, they're making a, a statement. We know this God. We met with him. This is not some figment of our mad, imagination. This is not some frog God, sun God, Nile God that you cannot see, hear, touch. I mean, we know this God is there. We have met with him. It's fascinating, isn't it, that they say that. So this statement, though, would only anger Pharaoh as he, as he sees himself pitted against this rival God now. And again, the request for a three-day journey to worship again is, is put out there again. Let us go. But this time, there's a clause at it. Look at the end of three. This is very interesting. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence and with a sword. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, that wasn't said in chapter three or four. You go back and look. It's not there anywhere. Is this an add-on? Did Moses do a bit of... A little ad-libbing along here. Well, certainly everything in the Bible is uh, inspired by God. But it is interesting. And though there's no divine instruction given, we don't rule out that God had him save this and we say this and we know it. But here's what I believe he's doing. I think Moses at this moment is probably reflecting on the encounter he had along the way with his wife and his uncircumcised son and God was about ready to strike him down. And he goes... Uh, yeah, I've already seen what happens when you don't obey him. And we don't want that to happen to us, so let us go. We want to obey our God. You can see this persistence with Moses, and I truly uh, appreciate that. Now, whatever's behind this addition uh, to the command, those are just my thoughts, the command of God, Pharaoh's having none of it. Look at verse four with me. But the king of Egypt said to him, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. (laughs) Again, clearly, Pharaoh cares little of God's word. He does not care about God's word in any way, and he does not respond at all to, to Moses' response. He actually changes the subject. 
Instead, he's possibly looking at these elders that maybe are standing there behind Moses and Aaron. He's connecting with, they're not working, I'm not making money. (laughs) Get back to work, is what he says. Notice verse 5, again Pharaoh says, Look, the people of the land are now many, and, and you would have them cease from their labors? So Pharaoh sees the nation of Israel as this massive workforce that he now owns to accomplish his goals and plans to build his cities and and temples and all the things that he wanted built. And so any work stoppage angers this king. And and I think by the statement here, I'm not sure, and I would probably go out on a limb here, I don't think he's a union guy at all. I mean, (laughs) why are you stopping? This is seven days a week, let's go. You're pulling people away. But I think this is more than bragging rights. Uh, I think this is a mark of ownership over the nation. I think in, in all reality, this king who thought he was a god believed he owned these people. He also knows that if work stops, the loss would be considerable. This is a massive amount of people. This is millions of people working. Can you imagine what that labor force looked like? how many bricks they could pump out, and how many buildings could be built, how much stuff could be moved with that type of workforce. And these elders standing around his palace only hardened his heart. Um, And he said, you're not getting a three-day vacation. Get back to work, is what we're seeing here. Look at six through nine. So So on the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and and their foremans saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make bricks as previous. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go worship to our God. Let let the labor be heavy on the men and let them work as it so that they will pay no attention to these false Words. Now, Pharaoh did not just dismiss Moses and, elder, and the elders here, but he takes immediate action. He knows what God has said. He's been clearly told what God says, and he takes immediate action the different, an opposite way. So this dictator now sought to bring the people under more control, under a stronger force of labor upon their backs. Now, the bricks in Egypt, I read a little bit on this, at this time at least, they were made out of this red clay that, that came from the Nile area. And, and then as grain was harvested, you know, they would cut that and bind it together. And, and as the wheat dried, they would knock the wheat out of that. And then they would have these straw, which during harvest time would be very plentiful and and, and they would mix that with uh, the red clay and, and it would become good brick. It would be a great building uh, product for them in this time. But up to now, Egypt had been providing these Hebrew slaves with all of that straw. It was very handy to have that brought to them and they were able to produce a certain amount of quota. But in this verse, Pharaoh greatly increases their labor by making them harvest that own. Not only harvest it, collect it, transport it in order to make bricks. And so this became a very difficult process on the nation of Israel. But notice in verse 8 that Pharaoh again sees that the request of the three-day vacation as a mark of laziness. I keep using vacation because he didn't care about worship. He thinks this is just a way to get out of work. 
He cares very little about the worship of the Hebrew God. He does not see that as any important at all. I think the world looks at that way. They don't care for the word of God. They don't care for the worship of God. It doesn't make sense to them that people would gather twice a week, maybe sometimes going even to a BFG, heaven forbid, and give up time. Why would you do that? It makes no sense to the world. And it certainly made no sense to Pharaoh to let these people go worship a rival God. In verse 9 is very interesting. He openly rejects God's word by calling them false words. Notice that. Let, let the labor be heavy on the men. Let them work at it so they, may, they will pay no attention to what? False words. Whoa. You want to call judgment down on yourself. Call God's words false. He is getting a case built against him which God has already set and ordained. So he has so much disdain for Israel and their God that he increases persecution on them. And, and I think what he's doing, as I studied this, I think his, he's attempting to get people, their people, to reject God's word themselves. Not only does he reject it, he doesn't believe in this God, nor is he going to let these people go, but I think his goal from that text, as you study that text, is to get God's people to reject it. Before I leave this point, just, just some thoughts along that line. We live in a world that doesn't know God. They don't know God, and, and we've been blessed. We turn with me just to a verse I want to show you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. It, this, is, this, could have been written by, um, this could have been written by Moses, um, but John writes it to the early church. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. God's word says this. Uh, John speaking here, inspired by the Spirit of God. We are from God. It's almost what Moses is saying, right? We've, we've met with him, we've come. He who knows God listens to us. He's, he's making a statement of his apostolic position. Probably by now he, he may, uh, most of us think he's the last apostle left. All of them have been martyred and John is banished to the island of Patmos and he's writing here to the church. But he says, we're from God. He who knows God listens to God. So my statement that the world does not know God, does not love his word, does not desire his truth, any of that, this is what the Bible says and John knew that as well as Moses. Notice he goes on, he says, he who is not from God does not listen to us. It's the same thing's happening with Moses. Pharaoh doesn't know this God, even says, I don't know this God. And so he says, look, he who is not from God does not listen from God. You're not a part of God. You're not, you don't respect him and worship him. And then look at this last phrase. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Boy, that's an important statement today, brothers and sisters. We live in a spirit of error today. In fact, I think the world has always lived in a spirit of error. But as the world continues to move towards God's sovereign end that he will bring someday, we continue to live in a spirit of error. And, and though our country was founded on Christian Judeo principles and we're grateful for those things, in comparative to time, it's been a relatively short time and we are abandoning those truths left and right. And, and in so many ways, and they will only put up with people who are from God, who have met with God, who know God, they will only put up with us so long. We will begin to feel 
the pressure of the spirit of air that they are under. This is the consistent practice of the world. Jesus, before he died, he told the disciples in that week, that Passion Week, John 15, verse 20, says, remember the words that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. It just sounds like Moses talking to Pharaoh, doesn't it? And so this is, this is the history of the world rejecting God, rejecting his word. They rejected his son. They reject truths. And one day, they will stand before the one they reject. So the world does not believe the word of God. And so I guess we have to ask the question, well, do we? We'll say, oh, come on, Scott, we're members. We've been here a long time. Well, let me ask a question. What's the connection between the word of God in obedience to God. There's got to be a connection there, right? Thousands and millions of people in the United States go to church every Sunday and hear sermons preached and God's word explained out there, and yet the church continues to slide from a church holy and set apart for God. We slide away in our views of merits. We slide our, in our view of God. We distort the words of Christ and his, and his truths constantly. The church is struggling greatly to this day. And so what's the connection between the word of God and obedience? Today, many self-proclaimed Christians will place themselves under God's word, but yet they'll have little to do with the obedience of it. And, And brothers and sisters, that's what we've been learning in Mark. Jesus sees a tree that looks like it should have something on it, but by a closer examination, there is nothing there. And in the end, that tree is cursed, completely killed so there, there's a connection here and as we begin to look at this you, you begin to realize the people who are God's people love his word and obey it now we're not perfect brothers and sisters man don't boy you're gonna if you watch me close enough I'll fail you if you're looking to me to for anything like that we're we're we are saved sinners but yet there's a consistent draw and desires as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who want to submit to him, to follow his word. It's the mark that gives you strength to know you belong to him. And you run around in a disobedient life along, you better be afraid of his judgment. I think God's given us his obedience to help us understand what he has done in our lives. This is what we call lordship salvation, those simple terms. He's our Lord. We submit to him. And so I believe this text is important for the church. There's a day coming when the world, the government, will say, who is this Lord? And why should we have you having taxes free for something? You're done. <laughs> They're going to say that. Who is this Lord? And what are we going to respond with? How will we react when we cannot meet in a room like this? We don't get tax write-offs for our giving. Will you still give? Will you meet? Will you take the, the risk as so many around our world, so many meet with great fear that they could be caught, but they love the Lord enough they meet? Will the American church do that if God tarries? See, these are good questions. So I think we look to the word of God. And I would encourage you, as David ends Psalms 139, and he begins to cry out after he sees an expression come out of him, he finally says, oh Lord, search me and know me and see if there's anything wicked within me. And I think that's what we do when we study the Bible together. Even the Old Testament passage like this, we go, Lord, do I believe your word and do I obey it? I see these men in the scriptures that harden their heart against God. 
Oh, Lord, don't let me harden my heart. Don't let sin stay resident and I harden my heart towards you. Second thought. Rejection of God's word often brings oppression. Rejection of God's word often brings oppression. The Bible does not tell us where Moses and Aaron and the elders met with Pharaoh, but I think the narrative suggests Pharaoh must have been close to that region where the Israelites were living and working. He, he's somewhere in that area. And, and Pharaoh's orders seem to be immediately enforced. Notice chap, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. So the taskmasters of the people and the foremans went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am going to give you I, I am not going to give you any straw. You go, get the straw for yourself, wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So notice that the Bible says this. Notice the response of Pharaoh. Thus says Pharaoh. Ooh, <laughs> he's messing, isn't he? Uh, Moses and Aaron, the elders, came in and said, Thus says the God of Israel. And next, notice his statement as he speaks to everybody. Thus says the Pharaoh. See, there's this battle going on in his mind, at least, between him and the God of Israel. He is trying to trump what the God of Israel is doing. And he's trying to display his ultimate authority over God's people. I can tell them what to do. I can suppress them. I can oppress them. So Pharaoh's message to the Israelites was really the exact opposite of what was asked for. You want freedom? Guess what I'm giving you? Less freedom, more labor. It goes directly against the word of God. This was a calculated effort, I believe, against Moses and the eldership and ultimately against God. And so Pharaoh's goal was to break the will of the people. He wanted to break them. He wanted them to reject their leaders and ultimately reject God. This is what Satan does. He works on our young people. He works on our older people. He works on people going through difficult times. He wants you to reject this God. Why did he let you go through this? Why has he suppressed you this way? Is this really a God that cares for you? He did that in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's still doing that. And you can see that happening here, and Pharaoh is his tool. The command forced the people to scatter the countryside. Can you imagine this? Um, remember, Egypt was focused in the land of Goshen, and it was a very, very um, uh, strong growing area. I'm sure they were able to grab straw there, but think about this. If this was not harvest season, and the, the straw that just came out of the, the uh, stacks where the, the grain was taken, that would be a good time, but when... When, when, the hay, you know, when the hay's grown and the grain is grown, it, it's harvest once a year. Now you're out raking fields and getting a little stubble and trying to stay up with this workload. And meanwhile, these taskmasters are on top of you. Look at verse 13 with me. The taskmasters uh, press them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as, you had, just as when you had straw. So with... With, one, uh, with, one, with no one to be the, the slave's advocate here, the taskmasters are suppressing the people. And most likely, the Egyptian leaders um, agreed with the Pharaoh's policy, and the Egyptian state was going, hey, this is a good thing. You know, we don't have to supply this. So the people can go get it themselves. I'm sure somebody said, hey, this is great. That was my job for a long time. I don't have to do this. So now it's, it's a difficult time, especially if that straw is not available. Look at verse 14 with me. Moreover, the foreman of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And they were asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making the bricks as 
previously. Now, most likely before these events, you know, being an Israelite foreman was probably a good job. That was one you wanted, right? But times have changed, and the foremans, notice in this verse, the foremans now are responsible for meeting these quotas. And when the quotas are not met, they felt this brutal force on their backs at the displeasure of Pharaoh and these Egyptian rulers. So now these leaders, they're, they're leaders within the country, they're foremans within the country, they're feeling the weight of this. He's, he's pushing that leadership to reject this God. He's pushing that leadership to reject these leaders. That's what he's after. And when these quotas are not, not met, these men pay dearly. Look at verse 15 with me. And then the foremans of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why do you deal this way with your servants? Now clearly these foremans of the sons of Israel had, had at one time had a favorable relationship with Pharaoh. They were making him great wealth and great buildings and so forth. But the Bible does not tell us how they got the message to Pharaoh, but, but clearly they're there to log a complaint. What has happened here? What's going on? We, we had a relationship with you. We were producing this for you, and now we are taking the beating. Again, it seems uh, Pharaoh must be in the area close enough because they go to register this complaint, but I think the wording in 15 is interesting. It isn't just register some light complaint here. They cried out to him. They felt the weight of this on them. And this words, this uh, a similar phrase is used as them crying out to God earlier and God hearing their cries. Now they're crying out to Pharaoh. Isn't this exactly what Satan wanted them to do? Don't cry out to your God anymore. Cry out to this king that thinks he's a God. And here they are with this heavy oppression on them crying out to Pharaoh. The foreman's must have felt trapped. Think about that. They must have felt trapped. There's my own people that we have to force to work harder. Um, we have to try to please this king, but if they don't work hard and, and get it done, we take the beat and they feel trapped in between this. It must have been an awful position for them. Look at verse 16. They said this, there is no straw given to your servants. Yet they keep saying to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten. But it is, it is the fault of your own people. So this reverse reflects a really accurate assessment of the situation. Notice the word fault there. It's used in verse 16. It's, it's a word that we would translate in the Hebrew, sin. It means to miss the mark. Um, it, it's used in a lot of different uh, avenues, but, but can be used, certainly translated as the word sin, to miss the mark. In other words, the foremans are protesting that it is not their fault for missing the quota, missing the mark. It's almost like they're pointing the finger at Pharaoh himself. Why are you doing this to us? We have served you. We have been slaves to you. We've been taskmasters or foremans over our own people, and now you're doing this to us. Pharaoh is putting his thumb upon them. Look at 17 and 18. But he said, you are lazy. You're very lazy. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to our Lord. <laughs> Verse 18 so go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. Pharaoh did not respond well to these charges. He did not like this. In fact, verse 17, notice you are lazy, you are very lazy. It's an emphatic statement. Pharaoh's attack, he attacks their laziness and attributes it to the worship of their God. See, when you say something loud enough and long enough, 
people will believe it after a while. And this is what he's doing. He's trying to turn his people against their very God. And Pharaoh attacks their laziness and attaches it to their worship and begins to repeat his demands again there in verse 18. Sometimes God does not perform the way you want him to. Can you imagine what they were thinking? The God that they cried out to has shown up. He sent his servants. They're they're showing us these signs. God's going to get us out of here. All that's going so well in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is misery. Have you been there before? Where you thought God was going to do something. You, you found a passage of scripture that you were claiming and holding on to, but God did not have that. He was not on the same plan there with you at that point. Some of us have experienced that. And all Moses is doing, he's trying to obey God. And, and for the Israelites, they, they thought God had heard their cries, but what's delaying this? Look at point three with me. Rejection of God's word always brings trouble. The rejection of God's word always brings Trouble. Look at verse 19 with me. The foreman, the foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. The word trouble is, is another Hebrew word that we can translate as evil at times. It's used um, several times in the scriptures. And so in essence, after the foremans meet with Pharaoh, they, they now understand that they're in trouble. Evil is on the rise. These strict orders from Pharaoh himself meant trouble for their lives. It means evil coming down on them. And the quotas would not be changed. And now they must figure out how to be responsible for this. Verse 20 um, they, they, when they depart there from Pharaoh's present, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. This is an interesting conversation that must have taken place here. And we see a part of it. But if anything, these, these four men have come out of this meeting they got with Pharaoh in a worse position. Pharaoh's even more mad, pressing this upon them, calling them lazy. Now Moses and Aaron had been waiting around to see how it go. And it's interesting, I thought about, why didn't they go in with them? Well, I don't know if Moses and Aaron said, oh, we're not going back in, you guys go in. Um, you know, or... or they didn't want them. They said, look, we've been dealing with this guy for a long time. Let's try to go do this our own. Whatever happened there, trouble is brewing. Look at verse 21. This is astounding. This is the foreman speaking to Moses, the servant of God, and Aaron. They said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. This is God's people speaking to God's leaders. This is what happens when you deny the word of God and you don't trust him when you can't see what's going on and maybe difficult in your life. This is what happens. This is going to happen many times over as we study the nation of Israel through the Old Testament. May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious to Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand and to kill us. That's quite a statement. The foremans now do not see Moses and Aaron is speaking for God. There's no way you can read that statement and realize that they think that God is speaking through these men. They have a problem. And the foremans most likely are, they had the most comfortable job. It was most tolerable. They've lost all that. They, they were part of us that believed God was going to rescue them. And now Moses and Aaron um, had assured them that God was going to come. They don't see it happening in their timing, in their way, and so they turn upon their leadership. And when circumstances 
did not turn out their way like they wanted, their aggression comes out of them. This happens all the time. It happens in marriages. It happens in churches. This is why the church splits. Probably some of the meanest, ugliest things I've seen in life happened in church. Disgraceful to what God is taking a church through. Maybe all, we know that God's in, God is in charge of all things, and sometimes he takes churches through difficult times to refine them and take them through, but we still respond in godly ways. And, and yet, that's not happening here. Now, there, there's a total rejection of God's word. God, God has not done this. The, the blame now lies upon the leaders. It's, it's interesting. Moses, Moses does not immediately respond to their charges and really exaggerations and rejection of his authority. I, I think he, too, seems a little bit lost here. Wait a minute. What about the snake and, 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 the, you know, and, the, and the leprosy and the fire and, and Aaron? Believe, I mean, where did that all go? What happened? And I think maybe he's even struggling to realize God's timing is much different than mine. But look at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Well, Moses is struggling in his capacity of leadership right now. He does turn to the Lord, and I think that's important. He does go to the Lord, and the Lord is patient with him. But his question reveals his heart, doesn't it? At first, he points to this harm. He says, why have you harmed this people? But I think that's secondary to his real problem. And this is what we saw earlier with him. Notice at the end of it, it says, why did you ever send me? And this happens to us as church leaders. We've gone through difficult times. Anybody who has been in ministry for any length of time um, has gone through difficult times. And there's times you just want to run away and you, you, you're like a Moses. You go, I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to do what you told me to do. I, I can feel this. As I studied this, even this morning, I thought, oh, Lord, I, I, I can feel that at times, difficult times in our past of difficult situations that came up in ministry. You feel like, God, I've, I've tried. I've done, everything, I've done everything you told me to do. And, and this all happened. And these people are mad. And everybody's screaming and yelling. And, oh, why'd you do this? And I think God lets us go through this to expose our true hearts at times. We're not as concerned about the people as we often think. We're concerned about our own welfare. And the reality of his heart comes out there at the end. Why did you ever send me? Why me, God? Look at verse 23. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In other words, how, how can I divinely authorize the mission to deliver God's people from this great suffering and it fails so bad. How can you do this? How could you send me to do this? The opposite of what Moses expected took place. So why did God not intervene and correct this at this time? And, and I think we'll see that in chapter 6 next week as we, we get into that. But um, it's exposing. And trials expose our hearts. And I just want to finish just quickly with this last thought here. The faithful turn to their God and Savior in times of darkness. And we're going to see Moses time and time again in very dark trials with a very stubborn people 
turn to God again and again. But I think there's great lessons in this chapter for us. The first is that God's word and his purposes are not always fulfilled in the way we expect them to. Does anybody can stand up and say, my life has turned out exactly the way I planned it? We would probably have to talk later about your lying problem. Um, Because every one of us have been disappointed in this life. We live in this fallen world. The people we love the most can disappoint us at times, can even hurt us. It's such a great lesson that God's ways are not our ways. And even though we cling to truth as believers, as, as I think this church does, and we anticipate certain results, we cannot dictate the timing of God. We submit to him, we don't make him to submit to us. And I think that's what's going on today in our modern church. There is constantly a push. And, and, and for us, this is a test of our faith. And a question to ask ourselves, will we cling to his perfect word when we cannot see the outcome of what we're going through? It's good questions. Hard to write in my own notes because I'm studying this. <laughs> Can we cling to the truth of God's word when we cannot see the outcome? It's a great lesson in this text. Another clear lesson is for those who are striving to carry out God's work. Maybe you're in ministry here and you've, whether it's full-time or your lay ministry or you teach a Sunday school class or whatever it may be, look, sin, Satan, and death are always opposing the things of God. I tell our young men in class and seminary class, look, this is the hardest thing you're ever going to do <laughs> is go in the ministry. Everything's against you. The world's against you. Sin's against you. Death's against you. People are against you. It's difficult. Your own sin nature's against you. <laughs> It's, it's a battle, and I think this is a great lesson here as we study Moses and the struggles that he goes through. And I think it's important to understand that the opposition may come even from individuals you're trying to help. Talk to any biblical counselor, and, and they'll tell you about stories of the people they're pouring their life into, how mad they can be at them. I remember sitting with a couple a long time ago, there's a gentleman so angry, and I go, I don't think you're paying me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm here, I've, I could be home with my wife and show, I, I'm trying to help and they're so angry with you because the counsel you're giving from God's word does not match what they want. So if you're in Christian ministry or in, in serving the Lord in any capacity, you have to realize Satan and sin and death are always opposing everything. Discouragement comes with setbacks to our plans. And they begin to poison our minds. I know as leadership, when things don't go our way, it can poison your mind. And, and then there's others who will come along and add poison to that. Oh, yeah, they should have never done that to you. And so say, hey, brother, what's the Lord trying to teach you? See, there's such practical lessons as we study this. But true ministry is, is not done through human strength. And everyone that, anyone who has their salt uh, and any salt at all in, in the ministry realizes every time I try to do this on my own strength, I fail. And I think Moses learns that lesson all the way through his ministry. And like Moses, discouraged leaders must turn to God. Struggles are inevitable for those seeking to follow God's will. But wise leaders must not doubt his word, even in the most difficult situations. If the leadership goes down, what would happen to God's people? And we see why Satan constantly attacks leaders of churches. Because if he gets them, he gets the people. And you see that even 
in this setting. Final, just to tie this back to Christ as we close, there was no one who went through more darker hours of ministry than the Lord Jesus Christ. The men that he poured everything in for three years abandoned him and he suffered alone. He, he went and held to what God had called him to do, held to the word of God to the bitter end till he finally said, it is finished. That's our Lord. And he's a chief shepherd. And all the under shepherds, particularly here, I can speak for this church, he's who we're working for. <laughs> he's who we give account. And his charge to us is to care for you in good, bad, and in different and difficult times. And, and so he is our example. And we constantly look to him and say, Lord Jesus, please cause me to be like you. Father, transform me, conform me into your image. I know it'll be difficult. There's rough spots in me that you're going to have to take off. Times of faithlessness that you have to, to burn off me and sand off me at times. Oh, Lord, make me more like your son. And I would challenge anyone in this room who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ to ask God to do that. And you may not ask. He may just do it because he loves you. And he wants you to obey him when it's difficult and when it's easy. That's the mark of a believer. It's the mark of a believer. Not saying there's not struggles and difficulties and times we've got to come to a brother or sister and pour our heart out and cry with them. Lord knows I've done that many times. But that brother or that sister will help restore you back to the truth and will keep running together. I love this text. When I started looking at it, I thought, oh Lord, this is not an easy text to preach, but it's needed. Because those people are us. We're easily swayed away from the Lord. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Amen? We've got to trust him. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for a good time in your word today. This is serious text, Lord. You can see Satan working overtime, trying to rob the truth of God's word, trying to move the people of God away from the truth of God. And here these leaders are being attacked by their own people. The people they've come to help. Lord, and this isn't the first time it's happened to Moses. He tried to rescue someone else and was, was blamed and screamed and yelled off and run out of town, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you for these lessons. May we learn from them. May we heed from them. May we be men and women here at Riverbend that stand firm on the truth, but lovingly and, and through the deep times and the difficult times and the good times, Lord, may we be found faithful. We thank you for this time in your word together. In Jesus' name. Amen. See you Sunday.